Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to us, whenever five new books are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some stories for older readers. You can find out more about those, and more importantly, you can find interviews with thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, book publicists, book people, the world's best people, at middlegradeninja.com. I uh, couldn't be more excited. We are talking today with none other than Sharon Zhao. Sharon, uh, how are you? Hello, I'm doing well. How about you? I am, I, I pumped. This book, um, Zachary Ying and the Dragon Emperor, uh, is absolutely hilarious and insightful and just a wonderful read. So I'm thrilled to talk to the author tonight. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their book or their background because I'll get it wrong and you'll be sitting there and you'll know that I've gotten it wrong and we'll both be sitting here with that knowledge. Um, <laughs> so rather than subjecting that to you, uh, uh, subjecting you to that, the, probably the best place to start is if you would give an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Okay, hello. Also, that is, I don't even have the hardcovers for Zachary Yen yet. And oh my God, it looks beautiful. I have two copies. I'm holding one ah. hardcover because it's the nice one that I can display here. That yes, I it's so pretty. Oh my God, I can't my wait. Water <laughs> I can't wait to get my hands on it. Yeah. So, hello, I am Xian J. Zhao, and then I am the number one New York Times bestselling author of the YA novel Iron Widow. And then also, Zachary Yen is my upcoming middle grade debut. And it is about Zach, a Chinese American boy who's not, who didn't really grow up connected to the Chinese side of his heritage. But then one day the spirit of the first emperor of China possesses his AR gaming headset and compels him on a journey across China to heist artifacts and defeat figures from myth and history in order to seal, um, seal a portal to the, to the underworld so he can save China and also save his mom's spirit. And so that is Zachary Yen. And then also some of you might know me as a YouTuber, which I accidentally became after a rant of mine about the 2020 Mulan uh, movie went viral on the internet. And then I just kept making videos. And yeah, so that's a thing, I guess. I have, I think, 425,000 subscribers on YouTube. So a, a, bit, of, a bit of subscribers. <laughs> and yeah, so that that is me now. I am a double-time author and YouTuber, and it's a, it's a very strange life, but I, it's, it's been fun. <laughs> well, one of those subscribers is now me. I was uh, digging into your history playlist, um, and it's, um, I'm a big fan of, of hardcore history and of Crash Course, anything that will take me through and, and give me a, a history lessons, and then I've just, now I've got you on my list. I'm like, oh my god, I have so much history to enjoy. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah, I love Dan Carlin. <laughs> Um, so there, well, there's number, any number of places that we can start. Um, I guess one place to start is I know that you would imagine stories when you were growing up, but you didn't put anything on paper until you were 15. Um, what, what, why the long wait? 
No, I think it's because, um, well, I am not sure, actually. I think, um, thinking back, I think it's mainly just uh, school had me so busy and I was so easily distracted. And then I could never, like, I did try to, like, write a few times, I guess. I just didn't have the proper motivation, I guess. Um, like, I would always just sit there and think about the stories I wanted to write, but the writing process itself is, I think even now it's pretty difficult for me. Like, it's, um, it takes a, a real amount of willpower for, for me to force myself to sit down and actually write. And I think that's the case for a lot of writers. Um, like, you see a lot of writers who just, like, world build all the time and then go on the internet and like look up stuff um, about writing but then when it comes to actual writing they're like eh. <laughs> so yeah that is that is me too I have to really force myself to write but reading about writing is so much easier than writing I know right <laughs> so what uh, what happens in 15 that changes things for you Okay, so I was at an anime convention where I met a guy, and he was 23, but don't worry, this uh, story doesn't get creepy. <laughs> so he, he was 23, and then he didn't know I was 15, and so he told me that he was a writer, and then I was like, oh, I'm a writer too. And But then we exchanged emails, and then he told me to send um, him some of my writing after I got home. And then after I got home, I was like, oh, oh no. So I actually like had to sit down and write a first chapter of the main story that was like in my head at the time. And then I sent it to him and he was like, oh yeah, this is pretty good. And then he gave me some constructive criticism. So I, um, I really enjoyed getting feedback. So I ended up like writing more chapters and then writing the entire novel. And then like, he also like knew I was 15 at that point. So he kind of like really backed off and just took a strict mentorship position toward me. And we're not really in contact anymore, but yeah, thank you, Dylan. But also uh, the years of suffering that he put me through because I wanted to get published after that. You know, we're talking about what was it, eight years of suffering before, before finally the good news is on the horizon. Yeah, I think seven or eight years. So knowing that uh, eventually you're going to be a New York Times bestseller and you're going to be on the Middle Great Ninja podcast, I mean, my God, uh, things are, it's, it's, it's nothing but up for you. Does that not put that in perspective? Does that not make it feel worth it? Would you not do it again knowing that that's going to be the conclusion? Oh, man. Oh, definitely. I, this is um, the reception to my books, like where I am now, it is beyond what I even fantasized about when in those like seven or year, eight years ago, when I was like, oh, man, my book is going to be like, uh, it's going to wow everyone. I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller. And then I never even dared to fantasize that I would be like a number one. I would debut a number one. And then um, my book will, be, book will be translated into like 14 languages. No, that's that's beyond even like my fantasies. And would I do it again, though? I, I am not sure. <laughs> I am not sure, but yeah, definitely it was a, it's been a long road. And I think, um, I think there is definitely a, an element of luck to publishing. And so, yeah, I can't answer whether I would do it again, just because I know that like, if there's certain things hadn't gone exactly right for me, then maybe I wouldn't be in this position. So yeah, it's um, definitely like it worked out for me, but would it work out for me again? I don't know. I don't know. 
I think it's a strong possibility. Okay. <laughs> the reason I say that is not just because you're talented, but because you've demonstrated such a capacity for hard work, whether it's through your YouTube channel or whether it's through your cosplay. Some of the cosplay photos I saw of you on Instagram are so intricate um, that it um, just just the thought of putting the outfit together gave me um, anxiety. Like, no, I, 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 I couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm so thrilled that uh, that you're able to do that and and uh, and pull that off. Yeah, maybe it's because um, uh, I am pretty cynical about uh, publishing and the publishing process. But ultimately, I think um, most of the people I know who have worked at this for years have gotten something out of it. Like they have gotten agents, and the writing has improved by leaps and bounds, and they're just like on the cusp of. Um, being published or they they do have a book deal so I think um there is reason to be optimistic I guess it's just me personally I'm like super cynical well we like cynicism on this show so I definitely want to want to hear some more of that yeah. uh, obviously it's a straightforward path you major in health sciences with a focus on biochemical disease mm -hmm. uh, Simon Fraser University as an author does yeah <laughs> that, that's what that makes does. sense <laughs> so when do you start thinking that um, maybe I step back from biochemical disease research and start focusing on fiction? So it wasn't really a choice of mine because I graduated straight into um, the height of the pandemic and I couldn't really go out and find jobs with my degree because uh, like nobody was open. We were all supposed to stay home. This was like March or April 2020. So um, even though I already had a book deal by then, my parents were really nagging me to go job hunting, but I couldn't go job hunting. So that's when I just really buckled down and wrote Zachary Yin in a frenzy. I was like, if I get a second book deal, then I know that I have what it takes. And my first book deal with Iron Widow wasn't just a fluke. And then it ended up selling at auction. So I guess it really just proved to myself that, yes, I can do this. And now, even though I still do have passion for science, um, I think I'm not the best person in a lab. I don't really follow orders very well. <laughs> I don't really do well in like a structured environment. So I think it's something that, you know, I, I like learning about science more than I like doing it. So this ultimately it worked out better for everyone because I don't know if I should be trusted in a lab. What does that not give you at least a, a solid foundation for which to do research for future science fiction stories? It definitely, because... Um, the book that I worked on for the longest, um, it's called The Sapphire Age, and then it was about, um, it was like hard-ish sci-fi. It took place like a thousand years in the future where humanity has uh, either bioengineered or mechanically engineered themselves into mermaids. So we have like um, bio mermaids and cyborg mermaids, and then they have colonized the ocean as well. And then that book, um, so many people have told me the concept is super cool. And I had put some like um, realistic-ish science into it. And that book, um, although it didn't sell in novel form, it will be coming out in another form. Um, so like, I can't announce it yet, but mm, like, just stay tuned for that. Can we maybe hint at, at what the form will be or not even that? There will be pictures. <laughs> so it will be more visual. <laughs> um, and um, so, okay, so I, I noticed that the, the, the book is uh, Zachary Ying is dedicated to your family who did not take this writing thing seriously at first, not even after that first deal. When do they come around and say, okay, maybe this is going to work out for you? Well, 
after Zachary and sold at auction, like only after that, because that's why like I am like super passive aggressive in my dedication, because I do know that I um I have to thank them for like uh letting me stay under their roof while I wrote. Uh, but also they were like super like, oh no, like don't go into writing. This is a lottery. Like, um, and they did think that my Iron Widow book deal was a fluke. And then they were like, oh, you you worked so many years to get um, just this one book deal. And it's like not even enough for you to live on. So what makes you think this is a viable career? And then, yeah, Zachary Yen was my, uh, was, was my attempt. Actually, you know, it, Zachary Yen was my attempt to prove it to myself as well. I was like, so it, can I really do this? Because at that point, I was really doubting myself too. Um, because Iron Widow didn't really get the reception from publishers that I had hoped for. It got rejected by like all a lot of of publishers. And uh, so Zachary Yen, I wrote it and I was like, let's see how this does. If this does well, then I can continue on this path and be being like a full-time author, even though I'm still not a full-time author. I guess YouTube is still a side gig. And yeah, so Zachary Yen, only after the success of Zachary Yen, how it sold in, at auction? Did my family come around, and did I did I personally gain full confidence in myself? So I know that Iron Widow is a New York Times bestseller. It didn't didn't have a tremendous um, uh, uh, flashy sale when it when it first mm -hmm. uh, comes out. At what point does it begin to pick up steam and become a number one New York Times bestseller? And, and why do you think it picked up steam? I think it picked up steam as soon as the book announcement came out because that book announcement went quite viral. I think now it has um, over 10,000 likes or something on Twitter. And I think, yeah, right after the announcement, I was like, oh, wow, people are really interested in this because I was really doubting the concept because it didn't have a flashy sale at publishing. And then when you're in publishing, everyone's like, oh, if you don't sell in a six-figure deal, then your book is going to tank and no one's ever going to read it. So yeah, there's a, that level of um, cynicism among uh, published the, the community, even though you know it is possible to um, make a career on the mid list. But yeah, I think um, just authors were super cynical about being on the mid list and everyone's like, oh no, um, publishing doesn't support the mid list, it's dying. And there's a lot of that going on um, among authors. But as soon as um, the announcement came out and I saw the level of enthusiasm, I was like, oh snap, like, yeah, this is something that like people are unexpectedly interested in. And then all my author friends told me to like not get too excited at the idea at all the hype that comes out um, during an announcement. They told me that it would die off um, after like a few days, but the, the hype for Iron Widow never really died off after that announcement. It just like, it kept going for like a year and a half until it culminated in debuting at number one. Well, I love uh, I love wonderful dramatic irony, and I know yeah. that you talked publicly in the in the past about your concern while you were writing that story that it was not going to be mainstream enough to be successful. Yeah. So, do you feel um, happy to have been proven so dramatically wrong? <laughs> well, definitely, because um, um, so many people have told me that Iron Widow's success gives them the confidence. Um, they need to like write their stories and especially I think yeah part of the reason Iron Widow didn't sell uh, flashily was because publishing didn't have any confidence that why sci-fi could sell it just has like this 
a bias against um, all forms of YA sci-fi. And I think in middle grade sci-fi too, because um, I did get a few rejections on Zachary Yen that was like, oh, that, this is too science-y for us, like even though it's just video games. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, um, I think publishing really like it does not quite know what it's doing. And I think that like everyone in the industry can attest that it's basically just like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And then if something doesn't stick, then they're like, oh no, um, judging by this data, this won't do well. But you know, that's not really the best way to do things. But also like they want to be able to predict what could be successful. So they do like rely on that data and they re rely on like comp titles as a crutch. But also, so if something's if something is not already on the shelves, then it's really hard to break in something fresh because they don't have data, they don't have comp titles, and they don't know how well um, they can't predict how well that that book is going to do. So after Iron Widow did well, then it can serve as that like data point for other similar stories. So now publishers have something to point at and be like, yes, this can succeed. And I think. Um, I really hope that this helps a lot more people in the future. Yeah, you provided a comp title that others will be able to use to um, to convince publishing to to pay attention. Although I was mm -hmm. I was thinking as I was reading uh, Zachary Yin that um, recently there have been some pretty high profile departures from publishing by editors uh, with a with a number of, of of complaints. But one of the complaints is they're spending all their time running the technical aspect of things because the senior people. Um, and I'm assuming that they, they don't have access to YouTube or podcasts, so they're never going to know I'm going to say this, but they, um, they, they don't even uh, do email. They have their emails printed up so they can respond manually and then have the emails typed up by someone and, and, and sent back to them. I think, well, that's somebody that's never going to understand Zachary. That's yeah. just going to be well beyond them. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, that really baffles me about the higher ups of publishing. But um, yeah, I really do feel bad for the younger people who are just because like you don't go into publishing without passion for books, and it's really sad to think that like that passion could just be crushed by bureaucracy and all those those like non tech savvy people, like really old people who are just running the scenes and trying to like predict what's gonna be hip in Kitlet, but they don't even like if they don't even like do emails. So what's going uh -huh. Of course, the obvious email, or the, I'm sorry, the obvious argument is if you knew and could predict with, with some regularity what is absolutely going to be successful, why is every book that you ever published not a huge success? Exactly. So, yeah, I think publishers, um, they don't know, they don't know what they're doing quite as much as we hope they would. Uh, that being said, any uh, publishing professional who has appeared or who will appear on this show is a certified genius, understands yes. everything about the market. We, re <laughs> we love and respect all of them. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, well, a couple more dark points and then let's get into the book. But I know because I, I want to I want to make uh, I want to find out how you were able to persevere through a couple of these. One, I know your first agent left the industry, which has to be devastating. Um, at that point, it wasn't really devastating because I also felt like um, we weren't a good fit at that point. And I think it actually took the pressure off of me to because I was I was really debating him. Should I should I leave her or um, should I stick with her? Because like it's really hard to find an agent. And if um, if the responsibility had fallen on me to leave her and then I, I know like looking back, I was, I spent another few years trying to find a second agent. So I think I really, I really would have devastated me. 
if I had left um, her and then I struggled so hard to find a second agent because I would have blamed myself for leaving all the time. So yeah, at that point, I was really just on the fence because she was um, not really a good communicator. She would go months before responding to my emails and my revisions. And that just put me in a really difficult position. So this is why I say to people now, I say to querying writers, it is better to get, um, it is better to have no agent than to have a bad agent that puts you really on the fence about leaving. Cause yeah, it's a really tough decision whether to leave this like sort of security that you now have or and. Um, or to make the choice to go into the trenches again. Uh, and yeah, so her leaving the industry, it was, yeah, it didn't devastate me at all. It was a weight off my shoulders. Well, another thing I wonder about is I know that you already had your, your first book deal before that, that YouTube video goes viral. Mm-hmm. That happens once you've got this whole other means of self-expression and, and a built-in audience. Does that not become a temptation to turn away from focusing on writing and focusing more on, on, on YouTube and where, they, where it would seem until the sales take off for the book where your, your, your audience is going to be? And I think I focus, yes, I definitely focused um, a lot more on my YouTube videos for uh, for the past year or so, just because out of financial necessity, because again, I didn't really get a very flashy sale for Iron Widow. It was not enough to live on. So I YouTube has been the main source of my income for the past year, but now I am going to wean back from doing videos because yeah, after have, after doing these two things at the same time, I do realize that my number one passion is still to write books. So probably um, I'm going to do one more video and then I'm going to take a hiatus from YouTube. So announcing that here, <laughs> I'm going to take a hiatus from doing YouTube videos until I get the Zachary Yen sequel done. I get the Iron Widow series done. And then I will make videos at my own leisure instead of, I'm not sure if I'm going to even take sponsorships on YouTube anymore because sponsorships force me to be on a video schedule. And then it takes me away from my writing. And then now I realize, you know, I still want writing to be my number one thing. And I know Iron Widow 2 Heavenly Tyrant comes out uh, spring next year, 2023. I mean, hopefully, uh, just because. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, because um, just because of all the time that I have to had to spend doing other things, I haven't had the chance to work on it as much as I wanted to. So it might get delayed again. I don't know, but I do want the book to be good and not rushed out just for the sake of. Um, being on a schedule. So yeah, I hope that it will be a good sequel and I will make, um, I will decide whether or not to delay it again, depending on how I feel about it. Cause I, I want it to be good. I don't want to just like rush it into people's hands for the sake of like having it out. So yes, um, it will come out depends hopefully in like 2023. Well, here's an absurdly personal question, because when you wrote the first book, it's just you writing and you don't know about how big an audience is going to be out there. But now that the book has done so well and everyone's reading it and you're hearing from readers, I assume, telling you how much they love it. How does that change your relationship relationship to the sequel? It is a lot more pressure for sure, because I just think I am like, ah, yeah, I am really afraid of disappointing people with the sequel, because uh, the sequel is pretty different. The vibes are different from Iron Widow, because Iron Widow is all about that, like, go, go, go energy. And then um, 
the sequel is basically consequences the book like Zetian makes some very drastic decisions at the end of Iron Widow, and then most readers do cheer for that. But also in my heart, I'm like, oh, there's no way that she could get away with doing that without facing like so many consequences. And the sequel is basically just like consequence after consequence crashing down on her, and so it's less straightforward of um, it's less like straightforward of like a hot blooded journey to the top. Um, it's a story about like after you get to the top, like how are you gonna handle like everything that's gonna come at you? Because she's gonna be like, oh, well, I'm not gonna spoil it, but she's gonna have a lot of responsibility now, and people are gonna look up to her um, for things just like mundane things, like oh, like what is your tax like? Are you gonna reform the tax system? And she's gonna be like, what are taxes? I don't know. I'm 18 years old. So there's a lot of that in the sequel. So a lot more, I guess, like just realism and consequences. So it's it's very different from the first book. And I'm not sure if everyone's going to like it, but it is the story that I do know needs to be told. Um, it is the natural way that I think the story needs to unfold. So um, I just have to tell myself to like do what I know is right for the story and then just not worry about people's um, reactions to it. Even though I do worry about people's reactions to it. Because like you have people getting like, full like tattoos of Zetian on their thigh and I'm like the series is not even over what if you hate the later books oh god you can't just laser that off your entire thigh so yeah that kind of stuff just freaks me out I uh had heard John I love this description I heard you describe that first book as local girl ruins male fantasy for 400 pages yeah <laughs> Let's unpack that a little bit. Why? Wh wh what does that mean? How did you run male fantasy for 400 pages? Well, it's because um, Iron Widow is essentially a feminist take on my favorite genre of media, which is media that's like geared toward teenage boys. I don't know why that's the kind of like thing that I gravitate toward. But yeah, I really love stuff like um, Yu-Gi-Oh, mecha anime, and Dragon Ball Z, just like shonen anime, which is anime geared toward teenage boys. And I also like like superhero stuff, which is also like pretty teenage boy centric. And the whole concept of Iron Widow is essentially like it would be a dream from the teenage boy's perspective. Like you get to pair up with a pretty girl to pilot this gigantic war machine. Like that's that's such a teen male fantasy, right? But then what if like it's told from the perspective of like that like teenage girl who's forced to be one of these like concubine pilots instead? And then, like, she finds this, like, she sees all the, like, ugly sides to this entire, like, um, teen male fantasy system. So, like, it's told from her perspective, and it's about her, like, deconstructing and ruining that male fantasy. So that is why it's, it's, um, it's a feminist take on my favorite media. And then, of course, you've got uh, some polyamory in there as well, which I know was initially a concern of yours that has obviously proven. So I know you're worried about this second book, but 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 looking back over things you've said in the past about, oh, my gosh, this might not work. And then it works tremendously well. Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> then probably this the second book is going to work well. As well. And then can we look forward to a third or, or can we say yet? Um, I can't say anything yet because the announcement's now out, but let me just say there's a reason that I call it the Iron Widow series and not the Iron Widow duology. <laughs> well, if, if, if esteemed audience can decipher that cryptic clue, they'll, yeah. <laughs> they'll figure that out. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's shift to middle grade. I know we talked briefly about uh, Zachary Yuna here at the start, but remind esteemed audience um, 
what do they need to know going into to Zachary Yen and the uh, and the Dragon Emperor? Okay, so Zachary Yen is about um, this Chinese-American boy, Zach, who gets whisked away on a journey across China to heist magical artifacts and defeat figures from Chinese and myth because he's, like, being coerced by, like, the first emperor of China. And then also his mom's soul has been snatched away by demons, so he has to go save her. And also the future, um, the entire fate of China might be at risk, so, like, no pressure. <laughs> None whatsoever. Uh, and who who would you say is the ideal reader for this story? I would say um, the I wrote this story for my twelve year old self, and so I guess essentially this book is dedicated to um, the future generation of diaspora like me because I had a rough time growing up, um, just like trying to figure out who I am, figure out my identity. Um, like I had to, um, I spent years unpacking my thoughts, my feelings about like being Chinese and being uh, Chinese Canadian, being Chinese diaspora. And in the book, I hope to do some of the unpacking for that um, future generation of diaspora. But I also think that like non-diaspora kids would enjoy it too, just because, you know, um, while I'm like tackling those heavy topics, I also wanted to have fun. And I hope that it is a fun book that uh, like just any middle grade reader would enjoy. Yeah, I love, um, without going too far, because I promise not to summarize your book, but I love that we we start with Zachary um, putting some of the food his mother has prepared for him in the uh, dumpster because he doesn't want his friends at school to, to, to smell it and to, and to think of it as different. He's saved up uh, money that he's going to buy his own lunch with. And we start there and I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be a, a story about this. And it is. But then immediately we've got demon fights. So I'm like, oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> So no, no question there. I just are very excited by that, <laughs> by yeah. that, that shift there because I didn't know exactly what to expect. Well, well, I like video games. This is fun. I'm I'm curious to see where we go with it. Oh, demon fight! I'm in. Let's do this. Oh yeah. <laughs> so um, and I I want I want those AR uh, the AR they're not goggles of Pfizer. The I looked up. I didn't know bone speakers were a thing. Uh, that's how far out of it that I am. I'm like, oh, could, could I get that? Is that is that a is that a tech? I know that that's technology that exists, but is there anything close to the kind of the kind of video game technology with the myth realm that you're talking about? Um, I would say Google Glass. Um, it's uh, pretty heavily inspired by Google Glass. So this actually takes place like in the near future. So about like 10 years, maybe 20 years after our time. And at that point, like AR um, technology is a lot more advanced. And I think the, they're slowly uh, going at it. They, they are working on it. But yeah, um, the, the gaming system in Zachary is just inspired by like Google Glass and Pokemon Go actually. <laughs> Because Pokemon Go has an AR aspect, and Myth Realm is definitely very heavily inspired by Pokemon Go. It's just Pokemon Go is except with like myth creatures from all cultures. And yeah, so I am looking forward to what they do with like VR and AR in the future because um, my friend bought um, a VR headset from Facebook or whatever, and then I tried it and it was super cool. And so I think that's, um, that's a developing field. Um, in technology and it's super exciting to see where they take it yeah i've got my i've got a psvr headset over there and i'm looking forward to the psvr too but i still feel like okay this is the atari and it's lovely and yes but, yeah but improve it work on it get me to the point where i don't know i'm in a game that's what i'm i'm hoping for 
Yes, exactly. Like we can kind of see like, oh yeah, this is something budding. And I think um, that's, that's really exciting, but also like, this is still something super niche. Like we know that, um, like, I think when you wear those like super bulky VR goggles, you know in your heart that, you know, this is not the best we can do. We can make this better. <laughs> uh, that being said, Skyrim VR, I never played Skyrim before. I played it in VR like, oh, well, this is this hints at the promise of what's to come. It's it's yes, not hundred yes. percent there, but I can see it. I can see it just over the horizon. It's coming. Yes, yeah. This is potential. Like yes, definitely potential. So hopefully, by the time I'm uh, ready for retirement, if not sooner, I can just retire to a VR world. Oh, wonderful. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like hopefully. Fingers, uh, fingers crossed. So okay, uh, we um, we get in the book, and I I love that you introduce this idea that when Zach meets Simon right there at the at, at the start before he is even uh, comfortable connecting through Mythrealm, where they can they could potentially play the game together, he wants to know more about um, his um, uh, his views on the on, on the government whether he um, respects them, like some Americans respect our government. I love that you you make that uh, very explicit uh, because I think that Americans sort of think, well, we don't love and ad 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 adhere to our government when they absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> well, some people, some people are like, oh no, like you got to respect the president, like no matter who he is. And well, we know how that turned out. <laughs> I don't have to respect nothing. I know, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. So um, is that uh, a, a concern? Because I know that uh, what grade uh, five, uh, you come from China to British, uh, British Columbia? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, um, I think grade, yeah, it was grade six. And then I went to Ontario. Um, I actually lived in a small um, Ontario town called London. And then that's where I kind of like paralleled Zach's um uh zach like living in a small town in maine and i think that was the like really close approximation i could get to like him being from like ontario uh, yeah him being in a small ontario town um no no it's me in a small ontario town and then he's in a small maine town and i, I didn't want him to i didn't want to put him in ontario because i didn't want it to be like too autobiographical autobiographical <laughs> I don't know. Is that a word? I don't know. I'm an author. I think we're and, uh, people know what we mean. Oh, I'm yeah. not even attempting because I know I'll get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't want like his experiences to be like identical to mine because like that that makes me feel weird things. And so yeah, um, so yeah, he his experience kind of reflects mine in that he is was well he was raised he he was raised in New York and then he got like shunted off to this small town of Maine where he suddenly like faces much more like um like racial tension and like maybe like xenophobia and ignorance than he did in New York um and also he's growing up and becoming aware of like just um how how different he is like quote-unquote different yeah so yeah there's that and what was the question again I feel like I just rambled off topic oh I was uh, just curious to know if that was based somewhat on your experience, if you were to meet somebody else uh, who was from China at, at the time, would you want to know their politics before you got uh, much closer to them? Or is that something specific for the novel? Um, I think it is now, um, it is something that, yeah, it is a concern for me when I meet, um, especially people from mainland China. And this is not to say that like, you should, you should be like distrust we're distrusting of people from mainland China, but for me personally, 
um, there is certain stuff that I know that if we disagree on, then we can't be friends. Because because uh, if someone's fresh from mainland China and they've been like exposed to all the like media censorship while growing up, then they could have some opinions um, that I disagree with and is like very hard to change. And for me, I do have to know like what their stance is on like those sort of things because before I become really close friends with them. And so, yeah, that is it's just like stances on things like, I guess, like um, Taiwan, this, that's going to be super controversial, just like Taiwan or like Tibet. And like, do you think that there is a weaker genocide going on in Xinjiang? Because there is. But then there are those people who like just like really like viciously deny that's happening. And, you know, I just can't be friends with someone like that. <laughs> Is it the kind of situation where, you know, if I encounter somebody who's, uh, who's a little bit younger, who's been, you know, um, raised in a very conservative household and been watching Fox News every day? Oh, yeah. Point, and I said, OK, well, I'm going to talk to you in five years from now and I'll check back in and see how you're doing, see how you've progressed. Hey, maybe, you know, maybe you were exposed to some different types of media, some facts stuck in there. And then we, maybe we could talk and you'll, 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 you'll be better and you say, hey, I'm so sorry about five years ago. I was, I was, I was crazy, but now I've got everything totally figured out. I'm like, oh, great. Me too. <laughs> and then we'll be fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like this is the, the exact same situation. Like I can't be friends with someone who watches Fox News religiously. <laughs> Uh, let's see. And then, um, well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your writing process for this. Well, first, I want to talk about these chapter titles, because I love that they're all How Something Happens. My favorite being How Everybody Sucks and Nothing's Over. Or yeah. <laughs> creation of China was exactly like American Idol. Very funny uh, chapter titles. When did that, when did you decide that that was the best way to, to label the chapters? It just sort of came about, to be honest, like, because I wanted... Um, I wanted the chapter titles to be like really quirky and tongue-in-cheek. And of course, that is inspired by uh, the master of these, who is like Rick Riordan. Is it Riordan or Riordan? I think it's Riordan, but I'm not. Riordan. Okay, yeah, inspired by Rick Riordan and his like really funny chapter titles. And I noticed that when I read those and then I would see a particularly funny chapter title, I would, I would like want to keep on reading. So I wanted that to like be have the same vibe um, in Zachary Yin. And so, yeah, that's just how it came about. And then the format, um, I wasn't, didn't go in like wanting to make it a format, but then I realized that like the first like three or so chapter titles I wrote were all like how something, something, something. So I was like, you know what? Let's keep doing this. Let's make this a thing. Like all the chapter titles are going to be like a how-to guide now. <laughs> and Mr. Riordan, if you're listening, as you do every week, please come on the show. Yeah. And- certain how to how to pronounce your name and we'll talk about uh, percy and all kinds of other wonderful stuff yes yes let's let's co- yeah, come talk about the new show like wh- what is it like like how, does it feel different from like the movie that you completely um disowned <laughs> i hope so <laughs> i've seen him say positive things on twitter I, I don't okay, know good. part of a contract he secretly signed, but I am assuming that if he's out there, he's saying that given that he has been so open and honest about his opinions on the on the film version. I know, right? That, it's so funny. That, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't think he's the type to like lie um, on social media just because he has to. Um, he's he's very not that type of person, it seems, because like he was just straight up trashing that movie. <laughs> the movie versions how how much money would you have to come up with to buy him at this point you know i don't know i don't think that he's like motivated by money i think you'd have to threaten something (laughs) i know right (laughs) 
Well, have you uh, have you thought about um, the possibility now that um, that the that that that, that you are a New York Times bestselling authors of one or both of your series being adapted to t- film or television? Well, um, I can't announce anything, but let me just say that there is a certain type of deal for Iron Widow. We're getting all the best scoops on this show tonight. This is great. Yes. Uh, uh, Iron Widow is joining the Marvel Universe. That's what I heard. Oh, my God. No, that is Tony Stark. Okay, that is Tony Stark and like Black Widow's ship name. They're called Iron Widow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so like when people try to search about my book, they also come across a bunch of like Iron Man and Black Widow fan art, and that's really funny. And then I commissioned, um, I commissioned a parody of my characters as Iron Man and Black Widow just because I was like, hey, like um, Iron Widow shippers, I'm sorry that I'm clocking your tag, but here, I think you might like my book. Uh, there's one more book uh, these coming up. Do we know how many Zachary books we're going to have at this point, or is that one of those things we still have to leave vague and nebulous? Well, for now, I'm I could definitively say that like I am sitting on a two book deal, and uh, so there's definitely going to be a second book. And depending on how the first book does, um, I may or may not go for a third book. And well, this is going to be up to my publisher because they only contracted me for two books. And they keep saying it's a trilogy, but I'm like, hey, Simon and Schuster, slow down. You don't have me for a third book yet. Slow down. So yes, let's see how well the first book does. And then we'll see. We'll see. Well, I mean, does that impact how you plot and plan? Do you plot and plan or do you sit down and, and, and write as it comes? I really try to plot and plan. Because before um, before Iron Widow, I was a pantser, which means which doesn't mean that I pants everyone. <laughs> doesn't mean that I pull down my pants in public. It means that I write like by the seat of my pants, and I just like go with whatever is happening um, in my head, like whatever feels right. But I realized that that is not the way to structure a story. So now I really try to make myself plot. I have a like whole plot skeleton that I fill in for every book. I have to know the ending. I have to know the character arc. And I fill in as much of that skeleton as I can. But still, like my instinct is to write. Um, it's the pants. So I fill in as much of that as I can before I just like go in and write. And so, yeah, I try to have some sort of outline going. And then for Zachary Inn, I do have like a vague idea for um, for like a book two and book three. Well, definitely, I have a pretty strong idea of book two, but and, and I have a vague idea for book three and like the of the overarching story arc and character arc. Um, so yeah, I do try to have that at least. I have to know the ending, and then I have to know how the protagonist will grow. So only then um, can you write a story with momentum, because you have to know where you're going to like know the most efficient route toward it. You know what I mean? What do you find that, it, I know this has happened to me, it's happened to a number of authors I've talked to, um, that I will sit down and I'll, I'll make something of a plan. It's always a very loose um, outline. Um, but then the character will say, no. I'm yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's why I keep my, that's why I don't feel as bad when I can't really fill in my plot skeleton because I know that things are going to change once I actually start writing. And then <laughs> it's funny because um, I actually made a bunch of memes for my Iron Widow 2, like making memes is how I um, how I procrastinate <laughs> on writing the actual book. And then I made a few memes like six months ago. And then I came back to those memes, I think um, a few weeks ago. And I, and I was like, wow, like this is all wrong now. None of this applies anymore. 
I love that that's it's writing adjacent, making memes about your yes. writing, right? I mean, yes. Oh, and what's also writing adjacent is doing research. Like, yes, it has actually worked for me to um, watch like a 45 minute documentary um, on like um, hydraulic dams in China. Yeah, this is totally research. I could spend like two hours on it and then um, I go back and I write one sentence <laughs> of world building. But yeah, no, research is totally, uh, totally uh, work. Wasn't there a hydraulic dam and a favorite television show of mine? I better binge watch it just to be sure. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, no, I do the same thing. Like, I would watch a TV show because I'm like, oh, um, this has mildly similar um, plot, like, elements to my uh, to my sequel that I'm writing. So I better watch it to make sure that I get enough inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> the lies writers tell themselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Then I can expense my Netflix subscription. <laughs> As work expenses, you know, that, that's valid. You know, this is all research. <laughs> Every book you ever buy till the end of time, that's that's all research. It's true. You can expense, as an author, you can expense all of your books because, you know, they are considered, um, it's, it's work. I mean, you read books, those are the stuff, like, those are the stories by your colleagues. And then it is, it, yeah, it's a work expense to buy all of your colleagues' like, products. Just, it's It's valid. <laughs> And it is. What are you going to be, the jerk that shows up to your colleague's book event and doesn't buy the book? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's we're just trading because when you come to my event, you're going to buy my book. So it's, it's, it's all going to work out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have like a whole shelf of just like friend books. That This is my this is my friend book shelf like that. <laughs> <laughs> I am um, fortunately one one nice perk about hosting a show like this is people send me all the books I want to read for free. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> oh, I know, right? I'm rolling in the books. It's, it's I nice know. Thing. No, I love getting ARCs because some of them are just like, they're super exclusive. Like I have, um, oh God, where is my, like, like, look at that. This is just straight up, like, this is Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim. And this is just straight up, like, look at that. This is so exclusive. Nobody, probably only like five other people have an edition as, as exclusive as this. So. <laughs> are they uh, hoping for a blurb or they just thought you would like it and hoping you'll say anything about it or? Oh, no, people, yeah, people um, send me all sorts of books for blurbs. So I'm on a really tight um, blurb deadline. I have like, I always have like, like four or five um, upcoming books to read because they want me to blurb it. Well, let's talk briefly about blurb etiquette because I imagine lots of folks that are watching or listening to us have the same idea in their mind. How do I get you to blurb my book? So what is the best way to approach you um, and should anyone approach you? I mean, for God's sake, you've got to finish Iron Widow. You've got to get Zachary Ying. You have things to do. We can't have you uh, focusing solely on blurbs. Oh, well, oh God, I am such a <laughs> I because like so many of the uh, books that come to me like are books that I'm legitimately interested in and so I'm like oh man I'm so busy but I also I do really want to read this so now I'm like okay please send me an arc and I will make no promises about actually getting the blurb in on time but um I do this interests me and I will try to read it and I think um send out your blurb requests as early as possible to give authors some time to like put them in your schedule and if you um if you send them earlier then like you go on you go to the top of my queue <laughs> um yeah so make sure that you don't give like just a two months notice for the blurbs 
um, give more than that. And also, I don't really care how you come to me. Like some people have come to me through Twitter DMs. Some like have a whole formal thing where they're like their publisher writes a um, letter and then sends it to my agent, and then my agent like does the whole like exchange with like email addresses and stuff. It doesn't really matter to me. Just like if your concept interests me, then I am open to like reading your arc. But whether or not I have the time to read, it really it really depends on how much advance notice you give me. Well, let's go through your, your average schedule at this point. Um, what does your writing day look like? Um, suffering. <laughs> <laughs> what time What time does the suffering begin and how long does it, does it last for? It depends because, you know what, today I was lying in bed and then I was like, uh, oh, if I call Alexa now, she's going to respond. But I was like... Um, Lexa, wake me up at because uh, I knew that like this was gonna happen at like uh, five p.m. my time. So I was like, Lexa, wake me up at um, three p.m. And then she was like, Oh, I will wake you up at three p.m. tomorrow. And then that realized that made me realize I like it was already like three forty-five. And then I was like, Oh, I better wake up. <laughs> so yeah, today I woke up at like three forty-five p.m. And that's a uh, pretty regular thing for me, but it's not regular for me to not realize it. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I must have passed out. Are you, a, are you a night owl then? Definitely. Most of my writing, unfortunately, does get done at in the middle of the night. It's something that I wish didn't, wasn't the case, but somehow it is. Like somehow my creative juices just flow more, um, flow, flow more freely during the night. I have a I have a suspicion that it's because I'm meant to be in the old world, like in the Chinese time zone. That's how my body is adapted. But I don't know. Probably if I went back to, into China, I would like be on a Canadian time zone again. Just, just for some reason, I always have to like my creativity just only, only flows at night. So I wake up um, whenever this can be any time between 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then I wake up. I um, I get something to eat, though not right now because it's Ramadan. <laughs> so um, uh, I wake up. Um, if it's not Ramadan, I get something to eat, and then um, I somehow I and then I look at my inbox. I go ah, because <laughs> today I woke up to like twelve new emails in my inbox, and I was like ah. <laughs> so I do that. I I um, agonize for a while over emails. I may or may not answer them. Depends. <laughs> Depends on how I'm feeling. And then somehow, um, somehow I basically, this somehow just stuff, things happen. And then all of a sudden it's in the middle of the night where I can finally get, get started on my writing. <laughs> and I write on, this is my secret weapon. I write on an AlphaSmart 3000, um, a word processor. And, you know, it only has like this much, like four lines of space where you can see like what you've written so it prevents you from going back and editing and it also like it, it really has it does nothing else so it's really distraction free and i wrote the entirety of zachary in on this which is super helpful so yes for all of writers out there and who find it really difficult to concentrate this like get and get yourself an alpha smart it will like really help you with things so yes and that and it may or not, it may not be 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. where I finally get too tired to keep going and I go to sleep. So that is my very, very chaotic and not at all glamorous schedule. 
Um, when you're, so you, you, you've got only four lines, you're not going back, you're not checking it, you're just only going forward. Do you have any other screen or any other piece of paper with notes about, for where do, where do you keep your outline? Is the outline printed up someplace? Oh, it's not. It's, uh, it's on my computer. And then um, before I write, I like look at my outline on my computer and then I look at um, what's supposed to be happening. And then I go on my Office Smart and then I try to just like type it out. I try to go for it. Now, what's a successful day look like for you? Do you have like a word count you're trying to hit? Do you have a scene you want to get to? Yes. Um, my goal every day is 2,000 words. And then some days I hit it. Most of the days I do not. <laughs> but you know what? Like words are words. And eventually um, you do, you keep it up for enough. And, and eventually a book comes out. And that's all that matters. Just I try not to beat myself up too much about it anymore. But yeah eventually a book comes out and that's that's what matters well i imagine if uh, you're working at night one nice thing about that is once you've gotten through the bottom of your inbox then then it's done because everybody else is in bed the world is quiet and you can just focus right exactly unless um stuff from my uk publisher comes to me and they're just like oh hey at like um 3 a.m like hey sure, i want to do this event i'm like uh <laughs> <laughs> So, and then how about reading? Do you, do you slot in time for reading as well? Uh, yes. The reading, oh my God, reading happens um, before I go to bed. So there's a time where like, okay, so if like 3 a.m. is the, um, um, the, the time where in my head, I'm mentally like, okay, you should really go to bed now. It is 3 a.m. And then that's the uh, time where I like put away all my things my computer and then I um lie down on bed and then I open my kindle and start reading <laughs> I don't it's probably not a it's not the best habit but then I always have to just like read a little bit before I go to bed I think reading before bed is like one of the most healthy habits you could possibly have esteemed oh, okay read before bed <laughs> yes so yes I always have to read a little bit before bed <laughs> some of you aren't reading enough read more I know <laughs> So and, and we talk like I'm uh, talking to you about this. Like I don't know that you have other things you have to do, like uh, making time for us today, which we appreciate. Uh, then you've got other author events. You've got your your launch coming up. Although having it just happened by the time esteemed audience is hearing us, um, how do you manage all of the author events and promotion that you need to do? And then we'll get to social media because that's we haven't even touched that yet. Oh man, um, I don't really, I have a schedule in a sticky note, um, a digital sticky note on my computer. And then every, every day I just look at what I have to do. Um, if it's, if something's happening the next um, day, then I try to go to bed at a reasonable time and I set an alarm. And um, I think um, doing these events is fun and necessary because otherwise my days would be like so uh, monotonous that time passes by really fast and then I kind of like get into a slump and I think um, doing events energizes me to like keep writing because then because um, like so much of writing is just like being in your room and being um, being alone and then you I don't think you fully feel the impact of like the stuff that you're doing until like you go out and then you meet people who are like um, big fans of your work and you're like wow wow I am like really reaching out to a lot of people like I better like <laughs> I, I better like write the sequel faster so many of them are asking me for it. So yeah, being able to feel um, the um, impact that you have on people is super powerful and it manages to energize me. 
so yeah, um, I do like doing in-person events, and then I cannot wait to do my tour of the of the United States um, for Zachary Yin. I'm gonna be doing like a whole circle. Like there's Boston, and then I, I'm going to Austin, and then San Diego, and of course there's New York. So yes, I'm just gonna go in a go in a loop around the coast. coast. <laughs> uh, what's been your favorite reader reaction to something you've written so far? Oh, yes, I have a definitive one. And it's actually a post that I saw on Tumblr. And it's about um, um, this post, uh, this poster who was in France. And then they were like, oh, um, I was I was looking at um, the French edition of Iron Widow in a bookstore um, longingly. And then my dad was like, oh, like, I'll just get it. And then, um, and then their dad read it. And then in their next phone call to their, uh, with their dad, their dad was like, oh, so I wrote that, so I read that book about Chinese people that you picked up. It was really good. Is there more? <laughs> so that was, that's my favorite reaction just because of how, how wholesome it is. Like um, now my book is the book about Chinese people, I guess, which is it's super funny, but I'm really in, glad that this like random French dad enjoyed my book. <laughs> I mean, it's technically not inaccurate. I don't know about the, but it's it's a. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, a question that esteemed audience knows that I have to ask because I ask everybody who comes on the show, and then we'll talk social media because I'm I'm fascinated by how you're finding time to to manage all of that. But I ask everybody who comes on the show: Have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? Uh, not a ghost, but I'm convinced that my cats can see things that we can't. Like, I am pretty sure. Because, you know, we know that cats can smell things that we can't. So, like, it's, it's just natural to assume that they can see things that we can't. Because sometimes, like, cats will just, like, stare at a spot. And I'm like, what are you looking at? And, you know, I'm pretty sure that it's something that we can't see. <laughs> so I don't know if it's a ghost, but I'm for sure, I'm convinced that they can see things that we can't. I've had more than one cat now who would get freaked out about a certain period of night. Um, usually right around uh, 10, 10.30, they start just running around the house and meowing wildly, and they do it for about 10 minutes, and then they're, they're done. I'm like, huh, what got you so riled up? Hmm, yeah. Well, oh, those are the zoomies, but then what triggers the zoomies? We don't know. It's a mystery. How many? You own multiple cats, right? I, yeah, I have two. Coco Chin and, and Tim and you. Two, two kitties. Yeah. Let's see. And then other animals are just the cats? Uh, there's my dad's fish, but those are his. And um, so yeah, just just my cats, and I love them so much. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk social media. So you had that video in 2020, the live action Milan movie critique that that goes over what three million views. Yeah, it has like 3.6 now, which is just bad. Wait, no, um, the 2021 has like 3.2 or something. It's my 1998 cartoon Mulan review that has like 3.6 million. So which is just completely baffling to, to me because those are long videos and people really sat through them. Okay. <laughs> so how do you, because I know you do um, additional media critiques. So when did you decide to also do Chinese history? Oh, I always wanted to do um, Chinese history on my YouTube videos. Like, I think right from, right in one of my first, uh, um, I think in my Mulan 1998 video, I, I was already promising to do videos about Chinese history because, you know, that's my real gig. That's the stuff I really want to talk, want, want to talk about. And then um, in my media reviews, I do find a lot of excuses to start talking about Chinese history. And of course, Zachary Yin is just one, Zachary Yin, the book, is just one big excuse to like, 
tell people about Chinese history. And in my original draft of Zachary Ann, there was actually like so many more historical stories that my agent was like, okay, this is too much. You got to cut some of this out. You have to like focus on actually telling a story, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. Well, anybody that uh, is curious, and I never tire of, of telling people other YouTube channels they could be watching while they're watching us. Um, but uh, if, if they go to your channel uh, right now, they can look at your playlist um, for Chinese history. And I was listening, uh, watching uh, how a nun became uh, China's only female emperor. And it looks like you've just sat down and extemporaneously off the top of your head started talking history. Uh, and obviously there are there are edits because I, I can see your cat moving around uh, yeah. in the background. Um, but it looks like it's one long take. And that is that true? Can that possibly- That is not true at all. Um, I have to like really heavily edit down myself because I am actually not that good of an orator. And then, so I also have like this, like this, this like, um, what, is, what are those things called where it's like um, the things that like news people read off? Like you see Lester Holt on NBC. And of course he is not reading. He's not like reciting all the news off the top of his. He's he, it's a teleprompter. That's the word I was looking for. So I, I have to write an entire script and then um, I read off of a teleprompter because otherwise I can't like I can't recite all that. Um, information off the top of my head and then I have gotten better at uh, my my like actual raw footage to edited footage ratio I would say that um, I have to edit it down I have to edit about two-thirds of bad takes out of it um, and at the beginning, when I first started doing YouTube it was like I had to um, edit away um, three-fourths of um, of just bad takes of just like ums and then um, sentences I mess up. So yeah, there is a lot that you don't see that I keep in the in my computer. And the final product, um, it's it's a very like edited down, sanitized version of just the chaotic take that I did. So how long does that script that you you should start with? Yeah, how long is the script? Script. I seem to have a tendency to go, well, for my his history topics, I go for like 40 minutes and I try to make that like my limit, um, 40, 40 minutes, my limit to how long a video is. And then nowadays, I think whenever I do a video, I go for like 20 something minutes. Like my latest video, Turning Red, it was like 25 minutes or something. And I try to be shorter, but somehow I always end up writing like 20 minutes worth of material. Sorry, um, are you writing like word for word what you expect to say or is it just, hey, hit these key points along the way and then maybe send them ideas for jokes? Because they're very funny, these these videos. Oh. Um, how, 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 yeah, what does the script look like to get you prepared? Oh, it is word for word um because i am not a i'm not good at um, improv so i do some improv but not a lot and also if i stray away from the script then it's going to be a pain for me to like do the subtitles later <laughs> so i try to like write the script exactly as i like want the video want me to like say in the video and yeah so it's it's very it's very very tightly scripted because otherwise it's just a pain to deal with later <laughs> And you you do the the, the subtitles yourself? Uh, yeah, it's super simple. I discovered like before, um, the subtitles were done by my assistant Trisha. But now I realize that YouTube just lets you like upload the entire script, and then it will automatically just like try and match it to what you say, which is nice. Like thanks YouTube. <laughs> oh wow! 
So yeah, you've already written the the full script anyway. Why not? That makes. I sense. know. Yeah. So I could just I so I try not to stray off the script to not cause pain for me in the subtitle department. <laughs> so the, the extra pressure of do you want to correct your subtitles later? Better better read it more or less exact. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So how long from beginning to research to writing the script to recording the video to editing the video to putting the video up? How long would a 40 minute history video take you to put together? Oh, a 40 minute um, history video, definitely more than a week. For my shorter videos around the 20 minute something mark, um, it is also around a week. <laughs> Um, like, I would like to finish the script in like one day, but that never happens. So a script takes me um, three, four, maybe five days, and then I film, and then it takes me like, um, like probably 12 hours to edit. And most of this editing is done overnight because I'm always behind my deadlines for the videos. And, uh, and then I upload it to my sponsors for them to approve uh, my sponsored segment, and then I get to go live. And how do you deal with nerves? Because the only way I can uh, do a show like this is I remember it's just you and me having a conversation right now. And if should anybody watch or listen to it later, that's their business. That's got nothing to do with me. But if I were you and it's just me there reading the script, and I know that you're going to have what for as of this recording, 426,000 potential subscribers who might might tune in, uh, well over 100,000 on any given video, sometimes into two, 300, 400,000. They're all looking right at you, looking into the camera. Does that not ever give you pause? How do you overcome that? You must, you're human. You, that must give you a little bit of nervousness. How do you overcome that? Actually, I don't get nervous when I record videos. I think um, having a really solid script definitely helps because beforehand I've already ironed out everything I want to say. And then I have like thought about like how the, um, this might be received. So I like to do really heavy edits on the script. And yeah, having a really solid script. And then I just um, I just sit down and just like read the teleprompter and then it works out fine. That's amazing. Um, so, okay. So how do you know, when do you feel that you've had a successful video? Uh, I would consider... Um, I would consider all of my videos successes just because, you know, um, if I manage to get the video done, that's a success for me. So I don't really have um, a measure of like, oh, like I wish this had um, how many thousands of views or whatever. I don't really measure myself by that because I know that some topics I talk about are inherently like super, super obscure. So I would talk about... So, for example, I would um, I would talk about like this queen from the Shang Dynasty, and it somehow like it has people are watching it. That's a, that's a win for me because these are stories of my passion, stories that I'm like really want the world to know. And as yeah, as long as people are watching it, that's a success for me. And then um, there's videos which success catches me off guard, like my like um, it was a tan video, the how a nun became China's first female emperor, only female emperor that has like so many views, uh, which really surprised me because it is just me talking history for 40 minutes. And so yeah, all of my videos sub um, surprise me with their success because I don't, I don't chase trends. I don't, um, I just, I only do videos with topics that are close to my heart that I'm passionate about. And so, yeah, every video is is a success for me because I am always surprised that people are so interested in what I have to say. 
the you're so obviously knowledgeable about the history how do you get to that point where where do you gather your sources because you're not you know you're not you're not talking opinion this is all fact that somebody uh being the internet is going to be going through with the fine-tooth comb and making sure everything is correct right i know definitely yeah um they're always going to be like those nerds um, who are going to fact check your information. So I aim to be the nerd who like fact check their own information first. Like I am my own worst critic. And I always, um, if there's even like something that I'm like, I have the slightest doubt about, I go in and I research, um, I, I research the, the, the uh, <laughs> H word out of it. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, subscribers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, especially, um, I think I think having the ability to type and read Chinese really helps because um, most of this, like this, the history that has been studied for thousands of years, like whatever questions you have, someone else has already asked it. And if you Google hard enough, then you can find where people have discussed like, oh, is this true? Is this true? And if, if this is true because of these reasons. So I like look at those. I really like try to just iron out all of the like doubts that I had. And I look at like lectures by history professors um, in Chinese because like Chinese sources are always going to be the best. I do not trust English sources, especially English sources on the internet about this kind of thing but with like Chinese professors and stuff those like people who have studied the history studied the primary resources for um like years and years of their academic lives you know that their word is probably trustworthy so yeah I really rely heavily on just um lectures that are available online and yeah that's just um Chinese his history communication is a lot stronger in China than I feel than in the west just because like in China, you have like celebrity historians and archeologists who are like always on TV and they do, um, they have like variety shows about artifacts, which is just amazing. <laughs> and yeah, it's like the history communication, like pop history is a lot stronger in China. And so um, you can find these people who are reliable and then you can find what they've said and to like fact check your stuff and yeah so like for example my um my empress wu series is heavily based on um a series of lectures by the professor moment who i really respect and i know all of her stuff is like fact checked and true so i like really leaned into that those lectures while i was doing those videos and your passion is evident whether it's through the videos whether it's through the books how far does that go back when when did you first have a, a strong interest in in chinese history and history in general i think um well my dad is really into chinese history and i get a whole bunch of like he has a huge library full of like books on chinese history and i regularly consult them but i did yeah um I think, yeah, ever since I was a kid, I would be watching like lecture series on TV because that's that's what's broadcasted on Chinese uh, television, just like history professors just straight up giving you a lecture. And I think that has really influenced the um, the style of my videos because like most pop history videos on YouTube are like animations, which I do really respect, but I can't personally do animation. So that's why my videos are just me talking at the camera. And yeah, it has, I'm very influenced by those like history lectures that I watched as a kid 
on Chinese TV. And then in recent years, I like I got really, really back into Chinese history again because um, the stories just inspire me, like especially the stories that are like more counterculture, like about rebels and about these like women who um, managed to like become super powerful in spite of like Confucian doctrine that women have to like stay in, in the shadows and like support men instead. And so I'm really inspired by these stories of just people breaking the mold and yeah, rebelling and just like living their authentic lives. It's like the counterculture people. And so, yeah, that's where my um, interest in Chinese history comes from. Well, I think it's fair to say you're a counterculture person, yeah. For sure. I think I was I was born rebellious. Like um, in my most recent video on the turning red, I go into I, I talk a lot about how like my family wanted me to be a certain way. And then I just has never worked like my parents have long learned the lesson that they can't really force me to do anything I don't want to. <laughs> have they have they actually learned it? Mine, mine haven't. <laughs> uh, no, no, they haven't. Have they, they still try, but nowadays I have more like I have more clout to um, speak out against that because they can't tell me to like go out and find a job anymore because I make more money than them. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> when my mom or my dad say something that um, I, I just always bear in mind, this is love. This is just how they're showing it. Their concern for me, then their goal is for me to be their version of a happier, better than me, and I can I can focus on that aspect of it and appreciate it for what for what for that intention. Yes, this is why you know, like people may be really shocked that I still have a relationship with my parents after like all of all they've done to like prevent me from going into writing. But I just think to myself, you know what? Like it must, it really must be like um, frightening as an immigrant to like watch your kid like go into a field that has basically no like stability no automatic stability and then you're basically like you're kind of it must be hard to like watch your kid possibly like throw their entire lives away and like not have like descend into the kind of poverty that you like escape from the country to avoid and you know there was no guarantee that i was ever going to make it in writing so i think it there they were trying to be like uh, all wise and sagely and prevent me from ruining my own life. And so I'm like, you know what? You had good intentions. You were a bit mean about it, but you know what? I, I forgive you. I forgive you for this. Well, uh, just hypothetical. If they had been very supportive and said, yes, you're for sure going to be successful. Keep going. Do you think there's a possibility that you might not have worked so hard? I Oh, that's an interesting question, and I don't know, because, um, uh, yeah, I honestly don't know. I think I, if I had had their support, and I was able to go into writing, just like, well, I don't know if I would have gotten a creative writing degree, uh, but I think I would have been published at an earlier age, um, which is not necessarily a good thing, because I am happy with the age that I got published at. I think um, this age that I, I'm at right now, I'm like just, I'm finally out of university. I am like mature enough to deal with like um, all of the unexpected aspects that come with publishing, like being a public figure. I definitely, at like 19, I was definitely not ready to be a public figure. And um, so, yeah, uh, so I'm not sure in that alternate timeline where I would have had a supportive parents that I, 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 I don't know. Mm. Well, past a certain point, it's just an exercise and what a, what a fun thought, but we know what did happen. So whatever. 
<laughs> yeah, mainly because I can't really imagine my parents being supportive <laughs> of a <laughs> of an in progress me. It's only after like I have definitively had success that they were like, "Oh wow, look, I'm we're so proud." Well, of course you are. I'm successful now. <laughs> um. Well, now at this point, um, talking about uh, stepping back a little bit from YouTube to focus on writing. You've been so successful on YouTube. Could you give that that audience away? The the, the, how, the hundreds of thousands of people you know are going to tune in when you have something to say. Oh, I would not like straight up give it give the audience away because there is always going to be like I have so many video ideas that I want to do. It's just that you know I my literary career has kind of like taken a back. Um, taking a step back and I um, I need to catch up. So I, I'm just going to take a short break. Um, hopefully it won't be too long, but I still think I'm still going to make videos, just not on such a like tight schedule anymore. I'm going to be writing, um, I'll write my scripts in my so-called spare time whenever I feel like it. Um, there's still so much that I have to share with my audience. Like I am planning a video on like the entire history of China. Like, have you seen that? Like Bill Wirtz's The History of the World, I guess. I want to do one of those except for Chinese history, but that's going to be a lot of work. And so I'm just going to slowly chip away at that. But for sure, I am I'm really grateful to have this platform and I, I would never give it up. I would just never straight up quit YouTubing. What's that script going to look like for the entire history of China? Oh boy, I don't know, but it's going to be fun, I hope. <laughs> I mean, when you're done, send it off to your publisher and say, hey, go ahead and put this out as nonfiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's come at it on all fronts here. <laughs> so um, uh, knowing that you've been successful now on online, you've been successful on YouTube, you've been successful on, on Twitter, on, on Instagram, and certainly as an author, are there mediums that you yet yearn to reach out to? I know you mentioned that you're, you've maybe got another project working for your first novel. Uh, that we can't say anything other than involves pictures, but yes. are, I mean, at some point, do you want to do interpretive dance? Do you want to do some type of painting? Um, what uh, what what might yet be on the horizon? This is a lot on my plate already, so I am happy with the way things are, and maybe I would want to. Um, I have, uh, I don't know. Maybe I would want to break into Hollywood, possibly, but I'm not sure. It's not really. Um, I don't really have a burning desire to go into Hollywood, but if it happens, then, you know, that'll be great. But yeah, right now I am at a comfortable place. What aspect of movies would, what, what, what position in Hollywood would you like to hold? And just like, I guess uh, what I mean by that is just like Hollywood adapting my stuff and um, which may or may not happen for Iron Widow. I cannot announce yet, but yes, Iron Widow has a deal at something that um, rhymes with Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Cryptic clues, no one can solve. Yeah. <laughs> well, like if they if they came to you and they said that we want you to direct, would that be of interest to you? I'm probably not. I don't see myself as a good director. I don't know anything about it. And I think it will be super unfair to those people who have like been in film school for four years for me to just like randomly sit in the director's seat and be like, okay. Okay, everyone, let's get started. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, um, I'm comfortable where I am just because if I branch into other stuff, it just feels unfair to those people who have like worked for so long to like actually do those things. Fair enough. Well, I'm watching our, our time and it, it flew by. What happened? Yes, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what happens when you have uh, when you have an excellent conversation with somebody you admire and want to want to know more about. So I appreciate you uh, making the time tonight for for this evening. Although you're going to keep writing, so I hope that someday we'll 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 get back together and we'll do this again. Uh, oh yeah. Tonight, my last question is is usually some variation of if you could go back to the start of your writing career, middle of your writing career, wherever it would have been useful to you, and give yourself some advice that might have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of everyone who's watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Okay, I would go right back to my 15-year-old self and um, tell them, learn how to plot, have an ending in mind, do like at least a three-act structure or something, have like a beat sheet, um, like know what you're, know the destination of what you want to write, like know what you want to end up with and stop like just meandering through your story, stop it. (laughs) I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where yeah. can an esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Okay, so I am Xi'an J. Zhao on basically all the social media platforms, Twitter, um, yeah, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, I'm on all of those sites. And as always, esteemed audience, for more information about me and more importantly, interviews with thousands of editors, literary agents, authors, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 